It looks like legal abortions are over in Texas, just as Republicans turn on each other. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast here in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy S. Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and he's at houstonchronicle.com. And Jeremy, what are we going to talk about here? There's so much that we can get into. I thought we were going to start with guns. I thought we might start with the latest on Uvalde. I thought we might start with Republicans just screaming at each other at the GOP convention last week. But no, no, there's breaking news today, right, from the Supreme Court, a political earthquake in the makes, you know, in the, in the, in the works right now. Um, as the Roe versus Wade decision from decades ago has been overturned and protesters gathered outside the Supreme Court earlier this morning. <laughs> And so states like Texas can go right back to banning abortion, and it appears that will happen. This state does have a law that says that abortion here is completely outlawed uh, in 30 days after the ruling comes down. Uh, that's known as a, quote, trigger bill. Although, Jeremy, I hate that people keep calling it that because there's there are so many uh, gun debates going on that people will kind of mix that up. Yeah. Don't call it that. Just say just say it's it's something that wipes out abortion. Um, and we got the news uh, from Planned Parenthood and other providers earlier today uh, that they have ceased abortion services in Texas for now while they look at their legal options, if they even have any. Right. Their, their attorneys have said you need to slow down. Don't do that anymore. So women are being turned away from clinics. Even as we record this show this afternoon, the reality is setting in all across the country. Now, the Democrat who is running for governor in Texas, Beto O'Rourke, took to social media to rally his troops on this issue. This is devastating to women across this country, but nowhere more so than in the state of Texas, whose trigger law will go into effect 30 days from today, meaning that abortion will be illegal in the state of Texas with no exception for rape or incest. Now, we have to focus on the way in which we are going to overcome this and ensure that every Texas woman can make her own decisions about her own body, her own health care, and her own future. Well, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, how would that happen? The only way to do this is to win political power. We must win on the night of November 8th. I need you right now in this race with us. We've got to make sure that we reach every single voter across the state of Texas and ensure that they understand what's on the line. Jeremy, let's get right into the raw politics of this. I mean, we have talked a lot here on the show about how you have to have Democrats hit the inside straight to even have a shot at a real competitive election in this state. And what are the things that are sort of you know lurking out there, what has been lurking out there? It's this Roe versus Wade decision. It's the potential of electricity grid failures this summer. Uh, it may be, uh, you know, some blowback to uh, what's happening uh, with a lack of change in gun policy after yet another horrific school shooting. Um, if you look at the polling on abortion, uh, it, look, for the general electorate, it's different from the primary by a lot. They're completely different worlds, right? In the primary, you have Republicans having debates literally about whether women ought to be executed if they get an abortion, right? That was in one of the, that was a key issue in one of the runoff elections, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, you know, the, the person who didn't think that women should be, you know, executed for it did actually win the race in that Republican primary. But the fact that's even on the table tells you something about the GOP primary. But in the election uh, in November, it's very different when you get into the kind of policies that have been passed by this legislature and signed by Governor Abbott into law, um, people are not in favor uh, by large numbers, people are not in favor 
of these new laws that have no exception for rape and incest. Uh, you know, I think uh, Texans, uh, you know, the majority of Texans and people across the country don't really agree with that, but Republicans have been catering to their primary base. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 in general elections, you know, for decades we just didn't have voters turn out, right? You know, so so you think about it from a uh, uh, the perspective of the Democratic electorate, or, or even just really the electorate at large in polling that says that they they want more background checks for gun purchases, or mm-hmm. that they're against you know uh, abortion restrictions uh, that don't include exceptions for don't include exceptions for rape and incest you know there's a minority of people who want that to happen but are not enough of the majority of people who agree with those positions in polling are are voting right like so how do you right. get like the energy in a primary on the far left uh, engaged on this, plus get the people in the middle who oppose mm-hmm. these ideas to come out and vote too. That just hasn't happened in Texas for years. It's not until really 2014, 2016 we, that we started seeing kind of a shift in the electorate and more people getting mm-hmm. registered and voting. But until there's yeah. more, it's like it's it's shocking how few people we've had voting. We had 12 million people out of a state of 28 million just a few years ago who were registered voters. That's like that's ridiculously low compared to a lot right. of other states. And so until the mm. voting picks up, you know, better work, you know, he's right. It's like the way to change these types of things is going, you know, getting more people to vote. If you want to change it, you got to somehow get more people who agree with these positions to vote. Because I think there's a lot of people who agree with these positions to go against, mm-hmm. you know, some of the things we're seeing, but they're just not voting enough to put the fear into legislators. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, it, it does sound like a broken record here from us, right? How many times have I said that the Republican primary in Texas is the election of consequence, and November just almost doesn't even matter? The exception it was in 2018 uh, when you did have a competitive election. And hey, let, me, let me put it this way. It seems to me that the ultimate uh, way to hold government accountable is to have competitive elections. If you don't, the people in office will just do whatever they want, right? We have, a, we have an attorney general who has been under indictment for, what, six, seven years at this point, and it doesn't matter. And he's accused by people on his own staff, very conservative people. He's accused by them of uh, taking bribes and, uh, and misuse of office and, and, all, and you know, all of this stuff that just does not seem to matter because the only thing that does matter is that he's the Trumpiest of the candidates. He defeated George P. Bush in just a rout. It was really pathetic. Um, let, me, let, me make, let me make the point this way, because I, I'd like people to think about just how well thought out these uh, proposals and bills are when the Republican legislature passes them. Do you remember that the heartbeat bill and the bill that automatically makes abortion illegal, they both have no exception for rape and incest? And Governor Abbott was asked about that. He was being asked about it uh, during a bill signing ceremony. And a reporter from WFAA said, well, how do, you, uh, how do you justify that? The idea that there are no exceptions really for anything in any of this legislation. Why force a rape or incest victim to carry a pregnancy to term? Uh, it doesn't require that at all because uh, obviously uh, it provides uh, at least six weeks uh, for a person uh, to be able to uh, get an abortion. And so for one, it doesn't provide that. That said, however, let's make something very clear. Rape is a crime, and Texas will work tirelessly to make sure that we eliminate 
all rapists from the streets of Texas by aggressively going out and uh, arresting them and prosecuting them and getting them off the streets. So goal number one in the state of Texas is to eliminate rape. Goal number one in this state is to make sure that no rapes happen. That was last year at a bill signing ceremony, Jeremy. I was checking the headlines here, and it appears that the governor has not been successful in eliminating rape in this state just yet. We'll continue to update that uh, as we go. Now, after the heartbeat bill was passed, Lieutenant Governor Patrick was asked on KHOU in Houston about freedoms that you know individuals enjoy and that he supports, but but not uh, you know but doesn't support a woman's right to choose an abortion if that's what is deemed right for her in her situation by her and her doctor. Dan, people also point out that you believe people should have a choice to wear a mask or not, that you believe people should be allowed to carry a gun without any training, but you're not okay with telling a woman uh, that she can't decide what to do with her own body. Yeah. Len, uh, you know, it's interesting. When I passed the sonogram bill that I mentioned 10 years ago, uh, Planned Parenthood fought against women having a choice to see a sonogram. They wouldn't let women see a sonogram. So Planned Parenthood talks out of both sides of their mouth. We passed that bill. And again, once women could actually see the sonogram for the first time, uh, again, we've saved about 25,000 Texas lives every year. This is about saving lives. When you have a heartbeat, you're a living, breathing Texan. So if you're going to bring up the sonogram law, which in Patrick's uh, estimation is about transparency and in, in making a decision and making a health decision, Jeremy, wouldn't the uh, comparison with COVID be looking at the numbers of COVID cases, hospitalizations, you know, how serious the disease was, and at the time, and continues to be for some people, um, at the time that they were debating this, uh, you know, as far as people being able to wear masks and mask mandates and all of that, the numbers were not good at that time. So my comparison would be to say, well, hey, they did the equivalent of the sonogram on the COVID situation. And you had uh, folks like Patrick and Abbott wanting uh, folks to have the freedom to do whatever they wanted about the mask. But a woman can't do whatever she wants about having an abortion. Well, and, and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember the sonogram bill right, the problem is women didn't have a choice to not have the sonogram. You know, that, that's, yeah, that, you know, it, it seems like a weird argument uh, for them to, like, they already had a choice to get the sonogram. It's like, but now, like, what he was doing was like, no, 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 you have to have the sonogram for all of it, you know, which, which is definitely not a choice, well, right? Well, right. I mean, I guess, you know, my point would be that it, the, a, a sonogram, uh, you know, a, cor a correlation uh, with uh, COVID would be to require that people wake up in the morning and look at the COVID numbers in their neighborhood and then ha and then decide whether they want to wear the there mask. There you go. <laughs> right. Um, so constitutional law professor Steve Vladek over at UT Austin spoke with CBS uh, 11 reporter Christian Flores before the decision came out. And he said that it looks like um, the because of the legal framework that's being created here, that you could have the legislature here in Texas explore all other sorts of things uh, that could come right out of this abortion decision that you might not think would have anything to do with it. You know, it opens the door for the Texas legislature to try other things. You know, do we see, for example, the state try to, you know, pare back the right of same-sex couples to get married? Um, do we see other inroads into areas that have historically been constitutionally protected, like end-of-life medical decisions? 
and I've heard this a lot, uh, Jeremy, and if you look at what uh, was reported today about the decision, um, I think it was Justice Thomas who did uh, write uh, in, in, you know, in, in his opinion uh, that maybe the court should go back and look at some of those other things based on the legal reasoning for why Roe versus Wade is being overturned here. Yeah, he, he's opened a wide open door to kind of go at that. And I know a lot of people were talking about that is the next front in this. And and you got to remember, there's a lot of people in the Republican Party, and we saw it at the Texas Republican Party convention, who still think, you know, you know same-sex marriage is a sin, that they, they, they right. want to fight this still, even though it feels like it's been settled, right? You know, but it's not settled in the halls of the deepest corners of the Republican Party. And they're going to push forward with this. And now they have Clarence Thomas saying, here's your route to go. I'm opening the door wide Mm -hmm. open. And that should be next to all of y'all out there. Well, yeah. And remember when uh, some on the progressive side were theorizing about this previously, um, and Vladek, uh, I guess, I believe he's a little more liberal in his politics. I'm not sure if he would say that, but uh, but he had sort of theorized that. Uh, and some folks on the right said, no, 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 but y'all getting way ahead of yourselves. Don't worry about that. Um, well, there's Justice Thomas saying it. Uh, you know, in his in his opinion on this deal, um, you are going to see all kinds of battles play out, including the tension between local and state government. We are already starting to see uh, district attorneys around the state say that they are not going to prosecute women for getting an abortion in Texas. Uh, I saw a statement from the district attorney in Harris County. Um, I would expect something similar from the DAs in Harris County, Travis County, Bear County. El Paso County, you just name any of the places, especially any of the big cities that have Democratic district attorneys. Now, where this starts to get uh, messy legislatively on that front um, is that you have some Republicans who have already said, including um, Briscoe Cain from Deer Park, for example, one of the more conservative members of the Texas House has said they need to force the DAs to prosecute in these cases. Um, But you're going to get into a separation of powers issue uh, with that. A lot of people don't realize that the district attorney is a state-level position, right? They, they represent the state and not, for example, the county of Harris, right? Anytime there's a prosecution, it's the state of Texas versus whoever, right? They're elected locally. They're elected in these communities that are trending more democratic uh, and, you know, getting more so all the time. I say trending. I mean, it's like a rocket ship in some of these places like Harris County, which has gotten more and more democratic. Same thing in Dallas and things kind of turning in uh, places like Tarrant County, which had been, you know, traditionally one of the biggest, uh, I think it was the second biggest Republican uh, urban county in the United States. And, and, you know, it may stay that way. This is going to be probably a pretty bad year still for Democrats. I'm not sure that this is the thing that's going to push it in the direction of the Democrats instead of a big wave year for Republicans. But there are a lot of things adding up here, Jeremy. We'll get more into uh, the gun issue in just a second. A lot of things that are adding up to at least a more competitive year for Democrats because of some of the backlash that may come to some of these big uh, decisions, these big policy decisions, and, and these Supreme Court rulings. Yeah, it seems like the Democrats have a lot of ammunition now when they're talking to voters. Going, oh, why does it matter? Well, <laughs> there's a lot that matters right now, right? You know, it's like you just look at what we've been through. I want to say the like last six months. Uh, you know, it's like it just seems like there's been this constant flow of news that I think could be a motivating factor. 
factor uh, more so than people kind of realized at first. Like if you had asked me at the beginning of the year, you know, would abortion you know, rights be you know, something that could rally enough people? Uh, would they come out in full force in a general election uh, mm-hmm. on that one single issue? It's like uh, maybe now I think. Yes. You know, it's like I may not have thought that, you know, six months ago, but I think there's a different kind of energy going on now. And I think, you know, the realization uh, it's not just theoretical that the Mm -hmm. right to abortion could be taken away. Now it is like, no, no, they're taking it away and it's going to get worse unless you do something and you vote for something else. Otherwise, the Republicans are going to take it as, see, we all won again and we're going to keep pressing ahead in this you know, this way, because that's what the electorate wants of us. Yeah. And I'm really, um, I just sort of mystified by those who are genuinely surprised by this. I get why people are angry, but, but being angry and being surprised are different. You know, over the last three, four, five decades, basically ever since Roe versus Wade was handed down in the first place, conservatives have been organizing and look to their credit from a political movement standpoint, um, have been organizing in every way possible to reverse that decision. I mean, trying to stack the courts with justices and judges who will agree with them about this issue. They set up, you know, organizations like the Federalist Society that don't do anything else other than that. Just try to get conservatives and and also, by the way, young conservatives appointed to courts so that they'll be there if they have a lifetime appointment as a federal judge, they'll be there for decades, right? To try to keep sort of a bulwark against any of the progressive things that may come along. Um, if the Supreme court, uh, gets into and, and legislatures get into, um, you know, banning gay marriage once again, and some of these other things that progressives agree with, I mean, they're looking at, uh, the potential of getting into whether people can, uh, legally use contraceptives. Okay. I think that might get some people's attention, right, especially after this decision uh, this week. All of these things um, shouldn't be a surprise because Republicans have been working on this real hard. And, you know, you look at what is going on in Washington, and this will play right into what we're talking about with guns. Um, we have such an evenly divided country, and it's it's easy to kind of say that when you look at social media or you look at, you know, the way that uh, you know, most media covers these issues. There's the right and the left and the big clash of ideas. Um, but look at the embodiment of the country as the United States Senate. It is a 50-50 split. Those are statewide races where the senators have to run. And the people of the United States have sent and assembled a government in D.C. that's equally divided, that the Democrats basically, they technically have a majority if the, you know, if the vice president walks down the hall and you know, goes over there and breaks a tie on something. But you got to have 60 votes in the Senate. It's 50-50. Um, and you, you think about the struggles that Democrats have had over the last two years trying to pass even uh, you know, their basic stuff, like the Build Back Better program, a big federal spending program that they couldn't get out of the, out of the gate because some of the people in their own conference, you had Cinema and Manchin, who didn't want to go along with that stuff. Um, and you know, on the gun deal, Senator Cornyn, to his credit, was able to at least cobble something together that got 14 Republicans to say, okay, we're going to make a move on something that the Senate has not done anything about in 30 years. That's quite a heavy lift. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. It's like to, to you know, we think of like on the Republican Party, they benefited from two groups of single issue voters, you know, more than any. And that is the pro-life people who will vote for any Republican as long as they're pro-life. It doesn't matter what their other positions are. You know, they may disagree with Donald Trump and everything else, but you know, he says he's mm-hmm. pro-life, we're going with them. The other issue is guns. You know, it's like there's some people who only vote for a candidate based on, you know, what they say about the Second Amendment. Uh, and so those two single issue candidate, you know, uh, philosophies have really kind of helped the Republicans do all this. And I don't see quite the same thing from Democrats. You know, with Democrats, mm-hmm. somebody can be a pro-choice Democrat, but they're like, but yep. he's not progressive enough for me, so I may mm-hmm. not vote this time around. Or he's too moderate. Or you know, like, there's always something to kind of like that might make somebody not vote for. Him. But those, you know, pro-life and those gun right groups are just intensive voters, and they've been doing it, like you said, for 40 years. They've been going mm-hmm. to the polls, mostly losing for years and years and years. But now they're seeing the results of like just kind of pushing it forward you know it's like here they are there they've been handed these two issues and they're single issue issues which again the wider electorate probably doesn't fully agree with them on and yet they've mm-hmm. been able to succeed there is a political science lesson in all of this about passion and voting that have to happen it can't be just one or the other well about passion and voting and about the idea that life is not fair um it's interesting that the issue sets that work for republicans are maybe narrower right yep. like you're like you're saying it's basically two things two or three things um that republicans could point to as really great organizing principles for them but when you're a democrat you have a different challenge right you have to put together a coalition that is multiracial multiethnic multigenerational and when you go too far in any one direction on any one issue, you start to lose people in your coalition. So I will make the example and I will get uh, some hate mail and some hate tweets and whatever else. But we hear the Democrats talking all the time about transgender rights. And it's it's such a narrow group of people that you're advocating for. And it's not and this is right. Let, let's 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 get into this. It's not that you shouldn't do that. Right. It, it, no one is no one on this show is saying you shouldn't do that. But. There are issues you can talk about that grow your coalition instead of shrink it. So, and things that would help trans people. So, if you talk about Medicaid expansion, I am sure there are plenty of trans people who don't have health insurance who would appreciate the uh, the fact that you'd be advocating for that. Trans kids and violence against them is a real thing, right? And so, if you're advocating for some sort of gun safety reform, you are advocating for trans people by doing that. Abortion rights. I have heard from so many progressives who say that, oh, you know, reproductive rights and trans rights go hand in hand. So then talk about the thing that affects the most people, including trans people. If you advocate for abortion rights, then you are advocating for trans people and you don't have to narrowly focus your message. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I think you've really nailed it there because the uh, as the Republicans over, you know, you go back to the George W. years, right? You know, like they were like this big tent trying to build a bigger tent and bring more people in. Well, the current Republican Party isn't that. They've kind of left that on the table and are no longer going after that bigger tent, giving the Democrats even more opportunity to kind of expand their influence into those areas. If they see on that, they could provide messages that are broader for you know working you know Americans, but instead they get caught t- and tangled up in some of these 
you know, these issues that, like you mentioned, that just don't have enough of an audience or a bandwidth to kind of move. But you've got to win the most people. And there's a lot of people in the working middle class who want somebody to represent them and what they're going through. And it seems like there's a lot of territory there that the Republicans are potentially ceding to Democrats mm-hmm. by focusing on the far right of things. And yet, you know, until the Democrats can figure out how to harness that as a as a message going, you know, we're going to be the ones who help you, you know, earn a living, keep your job, not get fired for no good reason. You know, make sure the right. you know you have benefits, make sure you have health care, kind of knit all that stuff together in a better way so you can kind of drive a message that will win outside of the cities. And you got to win outside the urban areas at some point, I think. You know, although, look, the way Houston and San Antonio are going right Mm -hmm. now, it may be just a matter of time before they're so blue that the rural areas are just going to be offset. Well, so blue and so big, right? I mean, we keep adding a thousand people a day in Texas and guess where they are moving? It's not to Palestine, for example. Let's get into this gun debate. You know, as as fractured as the Democrats can be sometimes, uh, the Republicans are just at each other's throats in a way that I have not seen, and as you know, Jeremy, the vast majority of my career is covering Republican on Republican political violence in in Texas. Um, And I've I've attended so many of these um, RPT, Republican Party of Texas uh, conventions. This last one in Houston, where both both you and I were in attendance, it was, I think, the nastiest one I've been to. And that's saying quite a lot. Um, I've seen them fight over all kinds of things. Um, over immigration, which is just one of the nastiest fights in the Republican Party. This time around, it was so centered on guns and so focused on one man, the senior senator from Texas, John Cornyn. When I was checking in, I've told this story, I'll tell it again, when I was checking in and getting my media credential at the convention, it was the first time that I've covered one of these where the media and the general uh, delegates uh, all checked in in the same place, which I'm fine with. That's cool. As I said before, I like being among the people. It had also gave me a chance to see some of what was happening. And when you would pick up your delegate credential or your media credential, the lanyards, the thing that holds it around your neck and holds it in place, was sponsored by John Cornyn. It was a red lanyard that said U.S. Senator John Cornyn on it. And as you would get your lanyard, there was a lady standing right there with um, a Texas – and you'll love this – it was a TexasScorecard.com uh, lanyard, but she kept calling. She was just wrongly calling it the Texas Scoreboard, and she was like, "You better be reading that Texas Scoreboard, or you won't be. You won't know what's going on in Texas." I said, "Oh, I haven't heard of the Texas Scoreboard. Tell me more about that." So she was telling me about it, and trying to get me to wear that lanyard instead. And so you could tell that these folks are, or these people who are f- further to the right, I like to call them the sort of uh, right wing enforcement groups in Texas. Texas Scorecard, Empower Texans, Texas Right to Life, all these different groups that are funded by you know a small handful of billionaires uh, from West Texas. They were organizing actively against Cornyn at the convention, right? In fact, you saw that they were trying to keep a headcount and look around the convention. As thousands of delegates are walking around, they were looking at how many people had changed their lanyards from the Cornyn lanyard to the other lanyard. So by the time Cornyn spoke, it was 1.30 in the afternoon, and I was aware of a conversation that was happening internally in Cornyn's office with his staff, that they knew it was going to be pretty damn bad, Jeremy, that the folks at the convention were, there was going to be a lot of hatred directed at their boss. And I think you and I both kind of probably thought, well, there'll be a smattering of, uh, of anger. There'll be some booze, but it's not going to be anything overwhelming. Was that sort of your 
understanding or your impression walking into yeah, it? Yeah, we've been here before. You know, John Cornyn, you know, in 2018, when he you know, spoke, last spoke to the full convention live at an event, uh, like he got booed at the very yeah. start of it. Uh, but he was able to kind of change it and quell it, and then it kind of went away. And so I kind of expected the same thing to happen. And it was funny because all week long I kept checking in with his people just to make sure he was still planning to come because I, I thought, yeah. well, there's a chance that this booing could get a little rougher uh, based on some of the language we were he- seeing out there, again, from some of those right-wing groups, uh, you're like, okay, this could get a little rougher than we're used to seeing. And so I kept checking mm-hmm. in with his people. <laughs> like, so uh, you guys are still showing up? And they're like, yes, leave us alone already. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Well, and I, I got the sense, um, to their credit, I got the sense that his staff was pretty proud of their, of their boss uh, because he was ready to go take the heat, yeah. no matter how hot it got. And what were they mad about? They're mad about the bipartisan gun legislation that has now passed the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House just this uh, just this afternoon. Um, let me play for you some of the booing. It was not a smattering of anger. It was a ton of anger. And as you pointed out on social media, Jeremy, the, the, these folks even, and it was, I, I don't know how many people in the hall were booing. It was a substantial number. Okay, I, I don't know if it was half of the people, but it was a bunch of people just angrily booing, giving him the thumbs down. There was probably, there were probably some of them, you know, give him the double rods, you know, like just, uh, uh, you know, two middle fingers to the sky to John Cornyn in this hall. Uh, and I was standing sort of about two thirds of the, or maybe one third of the way back where the TV risers were. And I jumped up on the TV riser so that I could, you know, get a quick video and tweet that out. And you were at the front of the hall, sort of walking up near the stage. Um, and as you pointed out, even when he said, God bless Texas, they were still booing at John Cornyn. Thank you. God bless you. And may God continue to bless our great state of Texas. It was really nasty, Jeremy, and I saw where some folks commented online that um, you really needed to be in the room to understand just how nasty it was. Uh, and I and I, I felt that because standing sort of close to the middle of the crowd, I could feel the anger radiating toward me from these people. They, they were so pissed. They were so angry at this senator who they see as some sort of a traitor. And we'll get into what to the reason they think that, which is completely just bogus. Um, but they were so angry at him. Uh, and I'd never seen anything like it. And I went back and pulled from my file the old video of Big John, Senator John Cornyn. The, you know, the, they did the Big John song for him years ago when the convention would have been bigger, when there would have been more like 10,000 or 12,000 delegates. It was 14 years ago, I guess uh, 2006, 2008, whatever. They brought him out to the Big John song. And people went wild for John Cornyn. You know, he's a true conservative, rock rib conservative and all of that. At that time, you know, he had risen to the leadership ranks in his first term as a United States senator, which is pretty rare. Uh, One of the lyrics in that song is that uh, Cornyn made uh, lesser states squirm. Big John. You know, they loved him, you know, 14 years ago. And in the meantime, as you said, they've started to kind of turn on him. You can only be in office for so long before you become what is considered the establishment. Now, as all these boos were happening, and it just felt like nasty hatred in the hall, there were people saying in the moment, and I saw a text message from one delegate, it was in all caps, and it said, I will never come to another one of these things again because of the way these other people are acting. There was a lot of disgust in the hall at the way the other folks were booing at Cornyn. And this is what happens, is the people who are more extreme 
through their bad behavior, they end up driving down attendance at future conventions by acting that way, by doing those sorts of things that are divisive within the party. And so you start to see the numbers shrink. I think there were estimates and the, the, you know, the party will say, oh, we had 7,000, 8,000 people there. I don't think that in the hall they ever had more than maybe, maybe six, maybe 6,000, something like that. Uh, people may dispute the number, uh, but the fact is it's way smaller. And when the convention is smaller, that makes it more extreme. Well, and, and what's strange about it is like by, they, they were kind of wrong in what they were booing. You know, it's like in the censure they, you know, they kind of did of uh, Cornyn later on, you know, the next day, they voted for a censure that kind of accused him of doing a lot of things in the legislation that just isn't happening. You know, it's like he is right. there. There is no red flag law that will be in Texas. There's no expansion of a red flag law in Texas. There's nothing that's going to happen to take people's guns in Texas. None of that is happening in this legislation. The one thing that is really in the heart of this bill is that Kids from you know, kids, young men, eighteen to twenty-one, mm-hmm. will have to go through an extra background check to make sure there isn't something violent in their juvenile record that would have precluded right. them from owning a gun. That is, so yep. they're booing for this compromise piece, which is like you know, and and I and again, they're including a lot of stuff in this that he's not doing. You know, you you heard it too in the crowd. People were cursing at him. There are people mm-hmm. like yelling yep. things that just aren't true, you know, and, and, I, right. and, and yet he, I, I, I do hand it to him for trying to continue to express what the, tr- the bill said. You know, so even right. in his speech, you know, he was pretty defiant in explaining what wasn't in the bill, that he's not going to do anything to take away anybody's Second Amendment right. Nobody in the state mm-hmm. of Texas loses one ounce of their Second Amendment right in this compromise right. legislation that was done, except for people who want to kill <laughs> and they're, they're going to be yes, flagged. Right. You know, it's like the, the, the people in like, you know, again, like this young man in Uvalde, you know, it's like he had had a run in with law enforcement. And theoretically, mm-hmm. if this had been in place, law enforcement could have said, wait a minute, we just talked to this kid. You know, it's like, right. let's, let's review this record before we give it to him and let's keep an eye on him. Right. Let's slow things down. And when you talk to gun safety uh, advocates, uh, including groups like uh, Moms Demand Action, uh, they will say that, look, it may not necessarily have to do with school shootings, but uh, on the provision that has to do with closing the so-called boyfriend loophole, which all it is is, you know, right now, folks who are uh, men who are accused of uh, and convicted of domestic abuse, uh, they lose some of these rights. And what they are doing in the legislation is saying that that would extend to anybody who was a significant other. In other words, somebody that is somebody that you're dating, uh, it would apply to them as well. It's it's kind of insane that it doesn't apply now, right? And that, but that's not taking away anybody's Second Amendment right. And in fact, in this legislation, if it's a misdemeanor domestic violence deal. The gun rights go back to the person after five years, yeah. which uh, Rick Scott said that was the reason he was not going to support it because he wanted it to go further than that if you were going to crack down on domestic abusers. Now, after all that hatred at the convention, I had reported uh, at quorumreport.com that Cornyn told several people, quote, I've never given in to mobs and I'm not starting today. Close quote. Uh, some folks, including Dana Lesh, who at one point, I guess she may still be a paid spokesperson for the National Rifle Association. I know she was at one point, but anyway, she's a big Second Amendment person. She had questioned my reporting. The senator almost immediately retweeted our report. So I, 
I'm going to think that it's accurate. Um, some guy with a group called the American Firearms Association found Cornyn back in Washington and confronted him outside the U.S. Senate. Hey, Cornyn. Yes. You're delivering a great big victory for the gun control crowd. What have you ever done in your Senate career to expand gun rights? I think you're... Uh propagating huh? misinformation. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You're, no, I'm not. You're, you're, you're funding You're funding red flags for all the states, dude. What the heck? What have you ever done in your Senate career to advance gun rights? It might have been hard to hear there. Cornyn turned around and said the guy, to the guy, you're lying. Um, after all this ugliness, he was back on the floor, undeterred by that mob, as he reportedly described it, and was attempting to take a pragmatic approach. I don't want us to pass a bill for the purpose of checking a box. I want to make sure we actually do something useful, something that is capable of becoming a law, something that will have the potential to save lives. I'm happy to report as a result of the hard work of a number of senators in this chamber that we've made some serious progress. In particular, over the last few weeks, Senator Murphy, the senator from Connecticut, Senator Sinema, the senator from Arizona, Senator Tillis, the senator from North Carolina, and I have searched high and low for common ground. Now, there's some people would say, what's the use? Why try? We know this is an issue that divides much of the country, depending on where you live and maybe even divides people living in the same household. But I think we have found some areas where there's space for compromise. And I'm telling you that compromise was tough, Jeremy. I mean, they worked on it for about a month, right? As you have pointed out, we're a month out from the shooting in Uvalde, and you had Senator Cornyn's um, name uh, immediately put forth as the guy who was going to lead the bipartisan talks on trying to do something about guns with the blessing of the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell. And you have those who will say, this doesn't do enough. I get that. You have others who will say, and we've been hearing from them, you'll hear from some others, who say it does too much, that it's cracking down on Second Amendment rights. Um, when we say that the country is divided, as I pointed out, it's equally divided in the U.S. Senate. It is 50-50. And for the past year, Democrats have been arguing with each other about how, you know, how much in tax dollars to spend for social programs and couldn't come to an agreement. Their leadership failed on that. In a perfectly divided Senate, Cornyn, along with Democrats, and, and for all the liberals who are listening, and they say this doesn't do anything, go ask Chris Murphy, who represents Sandy Hook Elementary School, whether this doesn't do anything. Right? It's a Democrat from Connecticut. Ask him if it doesn't do anything. Um, they worked out a bill that, and again, Democrats couldn't get two of their own to go along with their spending plans. Cornyn found 14 Republicans willing to say yes on something that, guess what, they are all going to be attacked about as being squishy on guns every day of the week. I mean, you heard the hatred directed at Cornyn. You think those other Republicans aren't going to have to put up with that too? And sometimes, and look, Senator Cornyn doesn't get to pick the members of the Senate. The voters do that. He has to work with the people who the voters sent there, and leadership quite often is doing what you can 
with the people that you have. Now, look, look I, I've covered, you know, D.C. Uh, several times in my career. I covered the U.S. Senate a lot. I pay a lot of attention to kind of what happens there. It's just kind of a little kind of pet project on my side, you know, that I really, sure. you know, and I'm, I'm here to tell you, it's like there's almost no other Republican I can think of that could have landed this, you know, in this kind of situation. One, you needed a pro-gun Texas type Republican to kind of lead this, and he right. needs somebody with good relationships with some Democrats to still to do this, but who still had an open door with McConnell. It's like there aren't many people who kind of checked all those boxes and could could take the heat of this. You know, again, he's been booed before. He knows there are people on the right who you know still don't like him for whatever reasons, right? Mm-hmm. So he you had to have all those qualities in there because look, it, it's so much easier to just like walk away from this and let everybody else do it and like. Keep your presidential ambitions alive for the next time, you know. It's like, but he still kind of pressed ahead on this. And the other key point, and you and I have, t- you and I talked about this weeks ago about like this is how Cornyn operates, right? You know, it's like he finds a narrow piece of the law that looks like it failed, and then he can focus on it. You saw it after mm-hmm. Sutherland Springs, you know, while other people were giving speeches about you know good guys with guns or whatever, uh, he was kind of focused on what like, there was a hole in the NIC system, the background check of this, you know, uh, this former Air Force guy who ended up shooting up that church, right? That should have been the system. So he fixed that one little narrow piece. Here's another case where this 18-year-old had had some juvenile issues with law enforcement, but it could not be reviewed as part of his application for a gun. And so he's now narrowly closing this piece. So you kind of look at this as like, this is Cornyn in a nutshell, the going after these small little pieces, not giving you the big blustery speech that's going to put him on the presidential contender list anytime in the future, uh, but just kind of doing the, the the heavy work. And then, you know, again, going to get a rough reception on it. You know, he had a lot easier time with the Southern Springs piece uh, than right. this one, because this one certainly went further. This went further than what we saw after Southern in the spring. So, I don't know. That's a long way to say it. It's like the guy put in a lot. You know, it's like, look, not everybody loves the guy. I have plenty of criticism sure. for things that Cornyn did or didn't do in his career. Of course, yeah. But this is something he's really kind of clearly put his heart into and clearly was motivated by Uvalde. And you got to kind of give him some props for caring enough, you know, after what we saw after Uvalde to have it really motivate him. All of the Republicans who have room to maneuver and criticize Cornyn and just blow him up, and and you saw Attorney General Ken Paxton taking a swipe at him when he followed him on stage, right? He was the next speaker at the Republican Party of Texas uh, convention. Um, I have often said of Cornyn, uh, going back many years, that they have the room to do all that because of the steady leadership of a guy like Cornyn. That is borne out by his approval ratings over the last month since he was first named as the guy who was going to lead the talks on this, his approval ratings are the same. Nothing's different. While all this nastiness is playing out and people are saying all these ugly things, if you go out and actually poll people in Texas and say, well, what do you think about Senator Cornyn? He's been steady. He's the, he's the same guy who did the stuff you're talking about before, right? So I think the vast majority of people are probably not shocked that he'd be the guy to jump in and take the lead on this. Now, you've got Paxton, as I said, blowing up Cornyn. Uh, he was doing that on Newsmax, because of, because Fox News was not available, he, Ken Paxton on Newsmax was asked about Cornyn's efforts. One of your senators, Senator Cornyn, is in charge of that bill and negotiating it and seems very, very happy about it. Uh, what 
do you have to say to the senator, would this bill, this red flag gun confiscation bill, stop a Uvalde school shooting? Yeah, I don't think it would stop it in any way. I don't think it's going to be effective. Uh, I think what is effective is protecting these children at the, at the, the point of entry, uh, having school administrators and teachers ready to, to respond, passing a red flag law, largely ineffective, I would guess, in preventing this from ever happening. And I, I certainly don't think that's the right direction to go because we what we're talking about is people here that are not going to follow laws. They're not going to follow murder laws. They're not going to follow gun laws. They will find ways to get guns. And if you start restricting law-abiding citizens, it just makes it more difficult for law-abiding citizens to protect themselves. You know, Jeremy, Paxton has said a version of that uh, a few times, that people won't follow, quote, murder laws, close quote. I, I've, for years, I've heard people say that if you pass gun laws, that the bad guys won't follow the gun laws. But he's taking it a, a weird step in another direction with that they won't follow murder laws. I mean, by that logic, you would just make murder legal. Have you seen the movie The Purge, where all, all crimes are legal and, you know, you can even murder people and it's fine for, for one night a year? I mean, that's a life in Ken Paxton's uh, world, I guess. Um, but, uh, but this is why bar fights break out all over the place because of stuff like, because of these kinds of interviews. They asked him about a law that's not been proposed or passed by Congress about a, about you know requiring red flag laws, which this bill doesn't do. Yeah, and that was the point I was going to make. Is is like it's, every time I hear that, I'm just like, he clearly didn't read the bill. He hasn't gone through this bill. There is no red flag law in Texas when this thing happens. Like, there's nothing. It changes none of that. Of course, it would have no effect on the shooter in Uvalde because we don't have a red flag law. It's like maybe if we had one and there was more funding towards it, yes, that could have. But, you know, Paxton, like, by, and that's just, it's so frustrating when you know something's not in the bill, but people keep talking. It's what I was talking about with the Republican convention. They were adding mm -hmm. stuff in this, making it sound like there's red flag laws coming into Texas. There is no expansion of red flag laws into states that don't have right. them. It's like if you don't have a red flag law in your state, nothing changes on that front. It's like not that's not going to like and, I, and it's, it's frustrating to see other Texans go after a fellow Texas Republican and accuse him of doing that when it's clearly it's not in the bill. <laughs> There's plenty of stuff to criticize Cornyn for legitimately. Don't of make course. up a piece and say he's pushing red flag laws in Texas. He's not. Lie. It's not happening. Lie. Lie, lie, and he lie. Said, he, said it out, he said it out front. Yes. That, like there is right. no red They're flag law that. expansion here. Yes, Senator Ted Cruz agrees with Paxton, of course, and fought against Cornyn's legislation, uh, which doesn't take guns from law-abiding citizens, but Cruz makes it sound like it would. Um, none of those facts seem to matter to the very junior senator from Texas, who I think you would agree, Jeremy, uh, is doing it more uh, to sort of put himself in line for, once again, running for the presidency. Every time there is a horrific mass murder, and there have been far too many of them. I, I was in Uvalde the day after that horrific attack when that psychopath murdered 19 children and two teachers. And it is horrific. We need to stop them. But instantaneously, when there's a, a criminal attack, a mass murder, we have a debate in Washington, and there are two approaches. One approach is target the bad guys, target the criminals, target the violent felons and those with serious mental illness who try to illegally buy firearms prosecute them, put them in jail, get them off the street, 
and keep people safe. And that also includes protecting vulnerable places like schools and churches with police officers. That's an approach that works. That's an approach that makes sense. The other approach, the approach of the Democrats, is to try to take away firearms from law-abiding citizens, to try to go after the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens. And that approach is unconstitutional, but it also doesn't work. It's completely ineffective in stopping violent crime. Now, I know what Cruz and others would say is their evidence for why you know, those sorts of laws don't prevent violent crime. They will say, and we've heard Governor Abbott say this, Cruz has said a version of it. I think Paxton probably said some version of it, although not as articulate as Cruz. They would say something about how there's a lot of people who get shot in inner cities all the time. They will always point to Chicago as the big yes. example. Um, although, as, you, as we have reported here, you and I have talked about this, um, it's not really an apples-to-apples apples comparison to talk about street crime and then compare that to what happens in a classroom when someone who is a young, disturbed man who, by the way, as far as I could tell, followed the laws up until he started shooting people, he, he, he had asked his sister to purchase a weapon for him when he was too young to do so. And then when he turned 18, lickety split, he went and you know, got a gun and hauled off and did all this. Um, the, the deal in Uvalde, to compare it to what goes on in, in major cities like Chicago – is just dishonest because these things are not comparable. I mean, if you think about what happens in Chicago, it's because people, to get guns there, and it would make the, the opposite case of what Cruz is trying to say, to get guns there in Chicago, they just drive to neighboring states where the gun laws are lax and buy them there and then drive them to Chicago. So that would make the case for having a uniform law about all of this that is federal in, for all states, right? And... <laughs> Cruz wants to focus on how many doors are in the schools. Cruz wants to focus on school security. And they say over and over again that we want to make the schools more like, uh, more like airports, like TSA. As if, and I was traveling this past week, as if TSA is a model of efficiency. And I would also say this, with TSA, yes, they do process thousands of people at the airport every day. But at the airport, the flights don't all leave at the same time. At the high school in Allen, Texas, where there's more than 4,000 kids, the classes all start at the same time, right? So you can't have you can't have kids waiting in line forever to get into the class. It just won't work, and you got to address it on the front end. There's been so much debate about the police response, finger-pointing about the police response. We'll get to more of that in just a second, and that's all legitimate. All of that should be looked into. I mean, there are things that happen in Uvalde with the police— that seem completely unacceptable to almost everybody that I've talked to. But at the same time, you have to ask yourself this question. Should the police even have to show up to something like that in the first place? And why is it we allow policies to exist that foster that kind of thing to happen in the first place? And then you got, you know, the cops showing up like Barney Fife, not knowing how to deal with it. Yeah, and and the other, you know, the the whole conversation on hardening schools. Like, here's a brilliant thought that came to me as I was driving through Houston and Montgomery County, high growth area, you know, parts of of Texas. Um, what you see a lot at a lot of schools are a lot of portable classrooms. You know, that that the reality of Texas is that there is a dozen portable classrooms outside of my kids' high school. There's a 
dozen portable classrooms outside of the elementary school. So when you're hardening the schools, what are you talking about? What are you going to do about the you know 100 to 200 kids who are in the portables at any given time? You know, it's just like mm-hmm. it's been that way forever in Texas. I was in portable classrooms when I was a kid. My kids are in portable classrooms. You know, now it's like so as as they have this conversation about hardening of schools, it's like I think I, I think there's a huge problem with it. And like our schools aren't all ready to be hardened. And then, you know, what do you do with all the excess kids? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't I don't quite get it. So I, I, I see where Cruz is going. I see what he wants to do. And he's saying a lot of the right words to get, you know, probably some traction in a presidential election down the road. And I and I, I get his like, you know, decision to want not want to do anything to hurt Second Amendment rights. But I thought this bill had mm-hmm. that. And imagine how yes. powerful it would have been for Ted Cruz to join up with this bill. I thought about, you know, I had an interview with Ted Cruz, you know, during the convention where I spent, you know, 15 mm-hmm. to 20 minutes with him. Uh, and, and, and I wish I had kind of gone into this a little bit more. But like, boy, if he had put his popularity with some corners of the Republican Party into this to help John Cornyn, mm-hmm. It's like, wow, what a difference that could have made if he were on Fox News saying, look, John Cornyn's bill isn't going to take away my ability to buy a gun, nor any other right. legal you know, resident of this state. It's like if he had gone out and said that, boy, imagine what kind of goodwill that would have given Ted Cruz, not just within you know, some members of the U.S. Senate, but also kind of with a lot of Texans who kind of like after Uvalde, again, this is different. This is I, I look at the faces of those children in Uvalde pretty much every day since the shooting because we can't mm-hmm. lose context of what this is all about. And it was so quick, you know, as I listened to some of these interviews on Fox, it's clear that these people are not talking about the little children I see in these pictures every day. Uh, And I wish everybody like, you know, if going back to things we should require people to do, I think every member of the U S Senate in the United States House should look into the eyes of every one of those kids in that picture and then go vote. You know, it's like, just, Mm -hmm. just remember what might they look like, you know, remember what Alethea looked like, you know, it's like before like this, hell kind of was brought into their classroom and i and i felt like we're only three four weeks away and i felt like Mm -hmm. you know here even in texas people are already kind of losing that and i can't believe that it's like if it was the same thing after newtown i was like we'll Mm -hmm. never get over this but it was just like Mm -hmm. weeks later that people forgot these little fifth you know five-year-olds were getting killed you know in their classroom and here we are again it's all happening again. It's like I got nine-year-olds whose lives have ended, you know, and like people are just moving on like, oh, this is this a debate about, you know, politics and guns and theoretical. Right. Yeah. It's like, no, no, there are literally children who are buried, you know, for no other reason than they went to school. It's like and I, it just seems like that should be a more of a motivating factor. Even today, when the House of Representatives voted on the gun bill, only one Texas yeah. Republican voted for the bill. It was this yeah. Tony Gonzalez who represents San Antonio and his district goes to Uvalde. No other Republican yeah. joined on this bill, you know, even though, again, it doesn't expand one single red flag law in Texas because we don't have any. It's like it right. won't affect anybody's ability to purchase a weapon except for 18 to 21 year olds who have had run ins with the police as juveniles. Couldn't be more right about it. I look at all of this finger pointing now in the state of Texas and in the city of Uvalde, 
where you have the mayor just sick to death of the state response to this, Jeremy. You remember the mayor of Uvalde was the one who cussed out Beto O'Rourke when he approached that stage the day after the shooting. And there was all that debate about whether Beto was basically setting himself on fire and ending his political career. It was the mayor uh, who was standing on stage with the governor, lieutenant governor, speaker of the House, attorney general, some state senators, state representatives, people like that. The mayor was the one who called Beto O'Rourke a, quote, sick son of a bitch who would make this a political issue. You remember all this? And uh, yeah, and oh, yeah, those Republicans who were just loving the mayor. I tweeted this out earlier. Look for them to change their tune on him real fast because he's had it with the state response and the state blaming local officials and local cops for the response. Now, look, I have said, and I think you agree, obviously the police response needs to be scrutinized and they need to figure out exactly what happened there. It is completely unacceptable uh, that so much information has been withheld and that so much of the information that we got right after the shooting was not only not you know not just incomplete but completely wrong, according to the exact same people who were updating us about it later. Every 24, 48, 72 hours, we kept hearing things that completely contradicted the official story that we had heard before. I have never covered a story where it was quite like that. Right? You always get new information, but not quite like that. So the mayor of Uvalde says that he was in the room when. Governor Abbott was first briefed about what happened. Remember, the governor gave information that turned out to be incorrect. The governor said that it could have been so much worse in Uvalde because the cops were there on the scene and they do what they do and they move quickly to try to save as many kids as they could. Turned out the exact opposite was true, that there were officers from multiple agencies who were just standing there in the hallway at the school for about an hour, including officers from the Texas Department of Public Safety, from Customs and Border Protection, from the uh, Uvalde ISD, uh, I think from the Sheriff's Department, from the actual Uvalde uh, Police Department, all of it. They're all there, right? And so there's all this finger pointing. And Abbott said that he was, quote, misled. Now, he didn't say who misled him, which we found to be interesting at the time, and there hadn't been exactly a whole lot of follow-up on that. Well, the mayor in Uvalde says that he knows who, quote, misled the governor because he was in the room in that private meeting where the governor was first briefed about all this. Hal Harrell was in that room with me. Tracy King was in that room with me. Senator Cruz, Senator Corn. I even even tell you who the DPS officer that gave the damn briefing to the governor. Not me. Not me at all. Because I didn't have any information. Because they wouldn't give me any information. So I'm just as frustrated, maybe not as frustrated as the families that have lost their loved ones, But it pisses me off that I can't give you answers or can't get you answers. So, like I said, I don't owe any allegiance to anybody. I'm termed out as mayor when I get through, and I don't want to seek political office again. So I don't owe any of of these elected officials not a damn thing. And so I'm telling you now, while you're here on the press, the voters seeing it, I'm not covering up for anybody. If you're guilty, we're going to throw it out there. You want to cover up, we're going to throw it out there. Well, he's had it, Jeremy, uh, and this has been building for some time as the head of the Department of Public Safety has faulted local law enforcement for not rushing in faster to try to save those children, the kids that you were talking about so eloquently, who lost their lives uh, when a guy showed up with an AR-style weapon, which, look, we get into the questions about how many minutes elapsed between when the cops got there 
and when they went into the classroom, uh, when they rushed in eventually, um, I get it. And again, all of that needs to be scrutinized to figure out exactly what happened. I'd like to see all of the body cam video from the officers who were on scene so we can see it from every angle possible. I want that kind of transparency. I think you do too. I think the, you know, the people of Texas and the country deserve that. But at the same time, the guy was on scene with an AR, which can fire 45 rounds a minute. If you know what you're doing with it, more than enough time to kill all the people who were killed there and more. So I think you don't just want to look at this on the back end as far as what the police response was, even though that's part of it, a big part of it. You also want to look at the front end of it as far as how we allow for a young man, a young disturbed man to show up with a weapon like that and do what he did. And to your point about the background checks, part of what Senator Cornyn's doing in Washington would at least address some of that. Yeah, it gives us at least a shot at maybe knowing a little bit more about this type of gun purchase before it happens. Again, even if it can't stop the young man from getting the gun, at least the police know he's got one now and that they may want to kind of pay attention to his household, make sure there's you know nothing going on there. So I don't think that's bad, you know, as long as it doesn't turn into some you know, overt surveillance of the kid, you know, but, you know, right. still enough to go, hey, has this guy posted anything really crazy on his social media sites? Which the answer was mm-hmm. yes. You know, it's like, should we be watching this kid? It's like, again, it's a small step, but man, it feels like it would have done something different if this was in place. Yeah. And I think that state leadership is probably quietly, you know, whether the, and I haven't seen any statements from Governor Abbott about whether he supports what Senator Cornyn is doing. Um, it would be interesting to know, uh, you know whether or not they are privately just thrilled that the leadership in Washington is, quote, doing something so that Republican leadership in Texas doesn't have to take a stand on uh, anything to do with, quote, unquote, gun control, gun safety, any of that. Uh, but that some sort of some some of the pressure can be taken out of the situation. It can be diffused a little bit, and Republicans can go back to talking about the things that they would like to talk about, which are winning messages for them in the general election, especially the economy, inflation, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's like to, to change the topic, you know, it's amazing. Even the word red flag. You know, think about where we were after like El Paso. Uh, and after Midland, Odessa, after those other shootings, you, you know, Republicans could use, talk about red flag laws as a possible thing to explore. But that's off the table now. They can't even talk about red flag laws. And you see what happens. They're like Even you know putting some funding to help other states with red flag laws will get you booed. <laughs> it's like, so you just can't do much even on that issue anymore. So like, I think you're right. It, like Abbott, and a lot of legislators are probably happy. They don't have to have any conversation on the red flag laws now because basically Cornyn took all the heat for them. You know, it's like he can now like, right. you know, he moves on, you know, they can move on and go talk about schools, you know, doors and, you know, what locks and what doesn't lock now. So they can kind of move on and happily not have to worry about saying the word red flag in a public crowd. <laughs> Right. Well, uh, it's not like policymakers back in Austin are going to make any progress on this. You had a uh, Texas Senate hearing that was public this week. It's the Texas Senate Special Committee to Save Everyone from Bad Guys or something like that. What is what is it? Uh, the, the Texas Senate Special Committee to Protect All Texans. I know what it is. But you had one of the legislators on that uh, panel speculate that the young man could have done just as much damage if he had a baseball bat, which I think... <laughs> It, it's 
I'm being charitable to say that's an aggressively ignorant comment. Uh, a baseball bat and an AR differ in their level of lethality. Um, some more coverage of the Republican convention. Did you see that uh, Beto O'Rourke was also on the Stephen Colbert show, CBS? And he was asked about, it's interesting when you see on Colbert's late night deal, that he's asking about the RPT platform. I wouldn't have expected that, but that's where we are in America. We're such a shining example of brilliance around here. Uh, Colbert had said that, look, some of the planks in the platform are crazy in his estimation. Then he asked whether Beto, and I thought this was savvy on Beto's part, uh, the answer to it. He said, uh, hey, look, Beto, is this your average Republican, or is this just sort of the extremists within the party who are kind of in charge of the official apparatus right now? No, no, these are the extremists, but... Connected to what we were talking about earlier, I think it reinforces the idea that you know progress is not inevitable. Uh, no victory is is ever final. I mean, no democracy is ever assured. We had the Voting Rights Act signed into law by a Texas president in 1965, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and you would have thought the matter was settled. But in the last 10 years after the Shelby decision, those rights have been chipped away nowhere more so than in the state of Texas. Texas, which produced Jane Roe of Roe versus Wade and Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, her two attorneys, which successfully prevailed upon an all-male Supreme Court to make abortion legal in the United States 49 years ago. That's a state that has outlawed abortion completely, beginning at conception with no exception for rape or incest. And the same with gay marriage. You, you would have thought, again, this issue is settled. Texas leadership is trying to turn back the clock. Now, that is not us. And I want the people of America outside of Texas to know this. That is not who we are. It's not Democrats, independents, or Republicans in the state. It is those who hold power today. Now, of course, Texas Republican leadership is captive to the GOP primary electorate, which, as you pointed out, Jeremy, um, even among that crowd, uh, we were at, what, uh, 1.9 million people voting in the GOP primary. Uh, for the folks who showed up at the convention, it's probably 0.4% of that who showed up in Houston for the convention. And if you had a contentious issue, I would argue that if you had a contentious issue on the floor of the convention, you could get down to around 0.1 or 0.2% of the Republican primary electorate that's setting the tone for the party in an official capacity, right? Yeah, this isn't your your, your average Joe in like Holotus, Texas Republican that you just kind of chat with on the street. This is like, like mm -hmm. significantly further right than I think most people would know. And clearly most regular Republicans who vote in primaries don't know who these guys are. They don't like I had somebody say, well, don't some of these people get voted on in their primary elections as precinct chairs mm -hmm. and things like that? Yeah, but nobody knows sure. who these people are. It's like nobody knows th these names. It's like they're not like universally known. It's like you might have like a couple dozen people who really know who these people are. And they're electing mm -hmm. these people who then go to these conventions and, and preach ideas like homosexuality is a sin. Let's get that into our platform. That is what yeah. we're talking about now. We're talking pe people who are holding on to some ideas that were probably really popular in 1952. You know, it's like it is not today's Texas. And yet the, the, the convention doesn't sound like it's kept up with what Texas looks like now.
Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, in my estimation, a lot of what happens now in conservative, quote-unquote, conservative politics is it's all about being insulting and, quote, owning the libs, yeah. right? It's not, it's not really so much about what you are for. It's about, uh, you know, proving somehow that the liberals are wrong and going out of your way to offend people who are more liberal than you are. And here's the thing. If you're somebody who is an attendee as a delegate at the GOP convention in Texas— Almost everybody you're going to meet is more liberal than you are. Yeah. <laughs> if you're somebody who goes, right, if you go to that convention. Um, and this part about, and this is in the platform, this part about uh, homosexuality is a, quote, abnormal lifestyle, that it's aberrant. Uh, Jason Vaughn is uh, from Houston. He's a gay Texas Republican. He was on CNN with Don Lemon, and, you know, Lemon was asking him, why are you even a Republican? Why do you even bother with these guys? If they hate you. Okay, I, I ask you this, and listen, I, I, I'm caveat because I don't, this is a, a legitimate question. I'm not saying that you cannot be a gay Republican. How, so the question would be is if you, you know, you're a gay man, they're calling you abnormal, then why are you a member of the Republican Party? I'm a member because there's, I'm not, there's, I, I get this question a lot. First, let me say, I'm not a member of the Republican Party because I want to be liked. I'm a member of the Republican Party because I want to get stuff done, and that's one of the pl closest places to do it. I absolutely believe in Harvey Milk's philosophy of the more gay people they know, the more likely they are to change. I show up time and time again, and there's a lot of – there's 80, 90, 95 percent of the policies that I care about. I was on the platform committee. You understand there's one in 31 people that are making up those platforms. There's one in 30 that in the entire state, I was unanimously elected again. The, the chairman of the party, Matt Rinaldi, is a close friend of mine. The vice chair is a close friend. I know all of these people. I go in there. Now, yes, do we disagree on policy? Do we, dis do we have some very heated rhetoric? Do I think this was a dumb idiotic move that distracts us from issues like property tax and bail reform. It's also and other hateful, Jason. It's also out. hateful. To say that call someone abnormal and, is and hateful. And you heard me call it out. You heard me, you, you, you played it earlier. You heard me call this out. It's one thing to disagree with people about policy. It's another thing to disagree with them about who you are. Uh, this has always been a very, uh, just a difficult thing for, for me to wrap my mind around the idea that, that, that you, you, you want to be part of a club that doesn't want you at all right it doesn't want, and that's not to say that the guy is wrong to want to be a republican to to you know to be to actually be a republican he's a he's a delegate at the rpt convention so he is a republican um i would say and this is what a former republican county chairman said it to me he said you know all these guys who talk about rhinos the people who are republican in name only that's the insult that get you know would get thrown around by the tea party guys and everything um they they're trying to exclude folks that kind of language is designed to exclude people, not to bring people in, right? That you're a Republican in name only. But if you're somebody who votes Republican, is a Republican activist, advocates for Republican values, that would make you a Republican indeed, not a Republican in name, right? And, and somebody like Vaughn is trying to be a Republican in his deeds, what he's doing, and, and trying to show up and, and, and make the party bigger, Jeremy, and rather than being smaller and and the reality in Texas is that the Republican Party you know at writ large you know people who vote or either vote Republican in November or are open to voting for Republicans it's a really large group all right uh, certainly larger than the Democrats 
at least so far. Um, and when you have uh, this long as the majority, you have so much room for error. You can do almost anything you want, and you still win anyway. These folks in the Republican Party now are in, unlike when George H.W. Bush was there and he was in party building mode, they're in the opposite mode now of kicking people out that they don't like. And if you go back decades ago in Texas, Governor Ann Richards talked about it, the idea that the Democrats did the same thing once upon a time. When every office holder in Texas was a Democrat, there was party purification going on, and the liberals like her were very excited to try to kick the conservatives out. And now you have the Republicans saying, we want to kick out anybody who's you know more liberal than Matt Rinaldi. That's the way to end up, that's the way to, resort, you know, to reverse positions with the Democrats at some point. Maybe it's not this year, but maybe it's the next cycle or the cycle after that, when you have eventually kicked out. All, and, you know, Governor Richards, she joked at the time, she said, you know, as Democrats, we were real successful in running off all of these conservative uh, Democrats to go be Republicans. That's how we ended up losing. Yeah, absolutely. They're setting the stage. Like, if this Republican Party is not big enough for some of these philosophies, if George W. Bush and George H. W. Bush and Ronald Reagan would get booed at your convention, it's like, what kind of Texas Republican Party are we? You know, because like, yeah, yeah. if Reagan came in there talking about immigration, you know, it's like he would get that reception that John Cornyn got. <laughs> it's like, right. are you kidding me? That guy pushed amnesty. He literally did amnesty in our time. It's like, he would not hear the end of it. He would make that Cornyn reception look like a gentle, uh, you know, pat on the, uh, on the wrist. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's like these folks, this is not your, I wouldn't even say your grandfather's Republican party. This isn't your dad's Republican. Party. This isn't your older brother's Republican party. In fact, and now <laughs> it's gone full. Right. Like, no, we're, 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 we're in a, purity test you know john cornyn's unacceptable greg abbott's barely acceptable you know it's like they're going after every dan crenshaw uh can be abused mm -hmm. at any time he's not even a republican right uh, barely a republican uh, there's this over-the-top activist uh, from the dallas area named alex stein and you saw this where he was screaming at dan crenshaw uh, and I was talking to some of the people who were walking with Crenshaw at the convention. Crenshaw and some other members of Congress were headed to a lunch there at the Hilton. Um, and this guy, Stein, is screaming at Crenshaw, calling him I Patch McCain. I Patch McCain. Hey, I Patch McCain. Look at I Patch McCain right here. You're a rhino. You're a globalist. You're a globalist rhino. You're a globalist rhino. Kid, you're a globalist right now. I pass McKay. I pass McKay. Now, this is sort of like frat boys doing um, political activism. If you watch the video of it, you can see this guy, Alex Stein, is sort of laughing and smiling while he's saying all this hateful stuff. So he's just trying to get a rise out of people. I was talking with someone who was walking with Crenshaw to that lunch, and they said it was scary, that it was legit scary, that, that they, felt, they felt unsafe in this moment where these where these guys uh, who are uh, angry with Crenshaw, and I'll get into supposedly why they're angry at him, um, but these guys who are protesting and angry at Crenshaw and filming Crenshaw, uh, they were coming at these folks in a really aggressive way. And the person I was talking to uh, who was walking with Crenshaw said they felt like somebody's going to get hurt. And maybe not even on purpose. It might be that they're confronting Crenshaw and the, his sort of entourage and they run into somebody, trip somebody, or, or it might have been that they actually did something violent. And the person I was talking to 
would have reason to think that not only were they insulting Crenshaw, one of the guys there said that Crenshaw should be executed for having something to do with the World Economic Forum. Dan Crenshaw is a fraud. He should be hung for treason for being part of the World Economic Forum, which is just a meeting of business leaders from around the world. They meet in, in Davos. Jer Jeremy, this stuff is really disturbing. Yeah. The way that people are taking this and, and people taking this in a direction that is uh, really unbelievable. It's, I mean, to, to the point of the person I was talking to, it's hard to imagine how you don't end up with something violent happening the way that certain people were reacting to Cornyn in that hall, the way these people are reacting to Crenshaw um, is so over the top. And I think on some level dangerous. Well, and, and, and remember where this came from, too. It was, it was just a month ago I was reporting that Tucker Carlson was the first one to use this eyepatch McCain garbage against him. Uh, again, the, for, for y'all who are watch, listening for the first time, remember that uh, Crenshaw lost that eye in Afghanistan while fighting for the country as a Navy SEAL and nearly died that day. Uh, and that's what's being made fun of there. You know, Tucker Carlson, who has never, you know, probably stepped outside of a squash court or whatever they do in, you know, the, <laughs> the liberal, you know, lives, yeah, right. regions of where he's from, whatever. But, yeah, but like, right. you know, for him, of all people, to be sitting there calling a guy like McCain. Look, you can have you can have a lot of disagreements with John McCain, you know, uh, the late mm -hmm. John McCain and Dan Crenshaw. Yeah. But, boy, isn't there some place where you can't go? And Carlson goes there and then you hear, you know, this guy just parroting that same garbage, you know, in that kind of environment in a hateful way. It's just like, come on. It's gross. Grow up. It's gross. Just, just it's grow nasty. up. It's, yeah, it's nasty. Now, for whatever reason, Crenshaw deems it necessary to respond to this by saying he is not part of the World Economic Forum in any way, shape, or, I almost said forum, in any way, shape, or form. So the latest conspiracy theory about me, and look, there are many, and they're kind of hilarious, and you, people love to click on them. One of the latest ones is that I'm secretly part of the World Economic Forum. That's right, so the conspiracy goes like this. Um, even though I vote uh, completely opposite to their values, everything I say and do is completely antithetical to everything. The World Economic Forum stands for that there's this belief that secretly I'm a card-carrying member. Um, it's not true. <laughs> Never collaborated with them. There's no correspondence with them. There's no membership. There's nothing. The reason people latch on to this, for those of you who don't know, and you probably don't even know what the World Economic Forum is, a few years ago in 2019, every year they publish a list of like up and coming leaders and they put me on the list. I rose to fame very, very quickly uh, in 2019. And so they add me to the list. There's no correspondence that occurs. There's, there's, again, there's no membership, there's no meetings, never been to Davos. And I think we need to put the conspiracy back in the box where it belongs. All of this is really ridiculous, this idea that, and again, this is sort of the anger at the Bush wing of the Republican Party, right? That, that you had, uh, you know, those folks who were described as, quote, globalists, the people who are in favor of free trade, the people who, you know, sort of spearheaded the uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, which, of course, President Trump knew he badmouthed that, but he knew he knew better than to get rid of it completely. Right now we have the USMCA as a business guy. He understood that. But at the same time, 
Trump is the guy who really originated this whole, you know, bad-mouthing of John McCain. I mean, you talked about Tucker Carlson. Well, that comes from somewhere too, right? I mean, it was it was uh, Trump who had said of McCain uh, that what he was making fun of him for being a POW. Remember this comment yeah. from Trump where he said, well, "I like the, I like the you know the war heroes who don't get captured." And in any other political environment, in any other campaign, that would have ended Trump's candidacy to do that. Previously, you would never have gone in this direction, but because of Trump. And I want to underscore this, and you can like it or not, you can agree with it or not, you can think that uh, you can think that it's great, or you can think that it's gross. I think it's gross. Um, but Trump has so much to do with the way that these discussions are playing out, right? I mean, the way that he would tweet about things, the way he would talk about things, positions he would take, and the insults that he would lob at people all the time. And you can say, hey, Scott, you're overreacting. You know, this decorum stuff, forget about that. As you pointed out previously, Jeremy, we're way past... Decorum. Now, this came up when Beto interrupted Abbott down in Uvalde, and some Republicans tried to say, well, that's not very statesmanlike. You can't do that. Did any of them ever see the video of President Trump making fun of a disabled reporter? I think we're way past decorum, right? So if you think I'm overreacting and you think it's fine, then it has to be fine for everyone, and no one is immune. Here's the same guy, Alex Stein, attacking rhino ted cruz did you expect that name to come out of my mouth it was ted cruz also being mocked also being harassed by this guy uh for a couple of things for leaving texaco uh, leaving texaco leaving texas for mexico <laughs> during the winter storm and also for being another alleged globalist why do you do that to your constituents when they're freezing cold? You know, I'm sure you think you're really smart. Oh, I am right? smart. Yeah, because you're a globalist. You do more for Ukraine <laughs> than you do for America. You know that. Remember how Trump made fun of your wife and you know, then you God, go become God, best God, friends God, with God Trump? I know, but why do you do that? You go become best friends with Trump after he makes fun of you and your wife? Why do you do that? I, I understand you don't want well, to defend you're a Texas coward. and you don't want no, to No, see, I do liberty. love America. See, you don't. You care more about the border between uh, Ukraine and Russia than you care about the border between Texas and Mexico. Why is that? Why do you care about that? I know, but why are you a globalist? You're a globalist, bud. You know it, Ted. Hey, Teddy, you're a globalist. You're, you're a globalist, Ted. You know that, bud. And that's why you're a coward and a liar. And you know that, and I know that. And that's why you're afraid to stand up for it. When people were freezing and dying, you were in Cancun, Mexico. You remember that? You remember when you were at the all-inclusive buffet while people were freezing? No, but do you remember that, Ted, when everybody was freezing? Remember that when people were dying? So they had to escort the guy out, uh, which I think they were right in doing that again. I tend to agree with those who said that this is the kind of situation that's volatile enough that something violent might happen. It, it's it's that uh, it's that in your face. It's that it's that uh, it's that aggressive. Um, if if Ted Cruz is not conservative enough for these people, to your point about who shows up at a convention now, 0.4 percent of people who even vote in a Republican primary, if they're not conservative enough for you. There could, there could be two ways to think about it. One is that these people are just twisted off and they're, you know, they're, they're crazy. But there's another way to think about it, which is folks like Cruz have helped, and Dan Patrick and others have contributed to people thinking that this is okay to behave this way, right? Trump has contributed to people thinking that it's okay to behave this way. And at some point, you got to look in the mirror and say, what did I do to contribute to this scenario 
where this is the way that our discourse is playing out, and it's been said many times, Jeremy, you can't keep, if you're a Republican and you are sort of sacrificing other Republicans in primaries and saying that they're rhinos, they're not conservative enough, and all of that, at some point, you can only shove other people toward the alligator's mouth before the alligator gets around to eating you, which is what's happening even to Senator Cruz now. Yeah, you can. It's funny because I was thinking about bears. You, you can try to befriend, befriend a bear by trying to feed it every day. It's like, and it will keep coming back to your your house and eating that food. But the first day you don't do it, they're going to rip your face off. You know, it's just like, so it, it's the same thing. You can try to feed this crowd, you know, with other like, that guy's not conservative, not, not conservative, but eventually they're coming for you. It's like, this is just the way it's programmed. It's like there's never enough conservatism for at least the people who are trying to do stuff. You know, if you're trying to mm-hmm. do work as a Republican, you're eventually going to run follow these guys. By just talking to a Democrat, you are going to be yeah. in trouble with them, you know, let alone even starting to talk about international issues in which you then become a globalist because you care that there are people in Ukraine fighting for their lives. Right. Well— we talked to the Democrats, we talked to the Republicans, and we talked to everybody in between here on the show. If you like the show, you know you do. You love it, actually. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcast. We don't judge you. We just judge you if this isn't your favorite one. Give us your uh, best rating that you can. Leave a, lo- a nice note for us. We appreciate it. I'm not even going to say that that's enough show, Jeremy. It just goes without saying. Yes, <laughs> That it's enough. This this edition of the show is like a double album. We got into everything. Give us the best rating you can there on your uh, on your podcast app. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.